Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast, the podcast where we look at elements of the scriptures that have become very real to us and thus have allowed us to draw more power out of the scriptures. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and this is one of those little short casts where I just uh, I don't have a guest. I just want to talk about a couple of things myself. And today we're going to talk about a story in the scriptures that uh, we've referred to actually a number of times. I, we referred to this story uh, in my interview with Camille uh, Frank Olson, and I believe uh, both of our interviews with uh, about Joseph, one with Stephen Smoot and one with Joe Spencer. They've not both been released at this point. I think only one has been, but the other will come next week. But we keep referencing this odd uh, little chapter, chapter 38, that's smack dab in the middle of the Joseph story. So chapter 37 is where the Joseph story starts. And uh, then you get this interruption with the story of Judah, and then you're back to the Joseph story. And I would say in a way it serves as a foil that is highlighting the difference between Judah who will sleep what he thinks sleep with a harlot in this story and uh, Joseph who runs away from his um, uh, woman who is trying to sleep with him uh, in the following chapter. And so there's a real kind of uh, literary device here called a foil where you're contrasting the two characters to learn something of them. But I think it's it's more than that. It's also, as, as we've mentioned in some of the other episodes, this is a time where I think we start to see a growth in Judah. He's not painted particularly well in this picture, but uh, I think there's growth that we see. And it's also important to investigate this story because both David and the Savior will come from the union that is discussed in this story. So let's jump into it and see if we can bring into, into it a number of uh, elements that, uh, for me, when I learned this about the ancient world, it just made it come alive for me. And I said, ah, that's what's going on here. So we, we have uh, Judah at the beginning of chapter 38. Judah marries a Canaanite. Her name is Shua, and uh, she gives him three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah. And, uh, and that's, those are his three sons by this Canaanite woman. We don't know uh, about other sons. Uh, this is what we know. So Judah then helps his, his firstborn son, Ur, marry a woman named Tamar. And Tamar, in many ways, is the heroine of this story, and she's certainly an ancestress of both David and Christ. And so let's look at what happens with Tamar. Uh, she marries Ur, Judah's firstborn son, but Ur is wicked. We see in verse 7, Ur is wicked, and he is slain by the Lord. We don't get any more information about it. Could be just that he dies young, and people assume it's because he's wicked in the Lord's slumber. or I, I don't know, but in any case, he dies. Now, this brings up a really important uh, element in ancient uh, Near Eastern civilizations that it, if we understand this, it will just make this story make more sense to us. And it will seem weird to us. The story seems weird to us. And when I first discuss this, it will seem weird to you. But I think eventually you'll say, ah, that makes sense. What we're going to encounter here, and this isn't the first or this isn't the only time we'll encounter this in the Old Testament, but it's an important time. And I believe it's the first time we're encountering a law called the Leveret Law of Marriage. It comes from the Akkadian word Lever, which means brother-in-law or uh, yeah, basically brother-in-law. So what the the deal is, is that when someone is married when a woman is married she leaves her family and becomes part of her husband's family and at this point it is her husband's family's duty to take care of her to to care for her of course that falls primarily to her husband but it's to the whole family now it's not only 
uh, a matter of caring, but it's a matter of making sure that that seed doesn't die out. So what uh, the worst thing that can happen is for a uh, man to marry a woman and then he dies before they have children. Now there's no one to care for his wife. Typically, when you get older and you can't care for yourself, it's the job of your children to care for you. But if there are no children, who's going to care for his wife? And moreover, he doesn't have any descendants. And so his line dies out. So in a, a law that seems very weird to us, but really was a law born out of charity, out of wanting to make sure people were taken care of, the Leverett Law of Marriage means that the husband's family has the responsibility of taking care of his widow and providing her with a child that will then take care of her and through whose seed the, the line can go on. So it is the job of the, typically the brother-in-law, the next oldest brother to take care of this woman. And one of the ways will be, it's a kind of a marriage. So it's, it's not a normal marriage. It's a different kind of a marriage, but it is a kind of marriage. And so the uh, duty of both of them is for her to become pregnant by this brother-in-law, the, the dead husband's brother, who then uh, the child from that union will not be the living brothers. It will be counted as the dead brother's child. And thus his inheritance goes to that, that child. Uh, his name goes through that child and so on, even though he is dead and the child is not actually his, it has become his. And that allows both for that line to go on and for this widow to have a child who will take care of her as she goes, grows older. So we, this is also part of what the birthright responsibility is, is that now uh, you, you have the resources to take care of this woman until she has a child that can take care of her and so on. But this is really just the family taking care of someone who is going to need to be taken care of. And so once Ur has died, we get in verse eight, Judah, who is helping, uh, he's in charge of this family still, he's still alive. Often these things are happening after the, the father uh, has died and the oldest son is kind of running things. In this case, the oldest son has died, but the father is still around. So he comes into play in this as well. He has a responsibility to take care of his daughter-in-law and to make sure that his son's line doesn't die out. And so we get in verse eight uh, that Judah says to his next son, Onan, to go into his brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. So he's asking him to fulfill the Leverett law of marriage, to uh, provide a child for his dead brother and for Tamar. But Onan is not so happy about this because he sees that his inheritance will get divided. Right now, he gets the, the birthright inheritance. He gets all of his stuff and his brother's stuff. But as soon as his brother has a child, then that, his brother's inheritance will go to that child and, and he loses some of that inheritance. And so what he does is he goes in to Tamar and basically uh, fulfills, the, I guess, the pleasurable elements of this uh, union, but doesn't go through with the very final uh, portion where you would have a child. The, so the, the thing that would give you responsibility, instead it says he spills his seed on the ground uh, so that she won't become pregnant. And so uh, as a result, uh, the Lord slays him as well. Uh, again, I'm assuming that's what happened, although it could be he just dies right after this and they say that's why I don't know. But in any case, he dies. So Judah says to his uh, Tamara's daughter-in-law, uh, why don't you go to your father's house? Now, he's supposed to take care of her, 
But I think he's looking and saying, okay, this woman is uh, not good for my sons. Everyone who hangs out with her dies. But he says, you go to your father's house until my next son is grown enough to fulfill these leveret responsibilities. And that's what uh, that's what she does. She goes back to her father's house. This is highly unusual. It's going to be embarrassing, shameful. Uh, it's, uh, it's not fulfilling their responsibility. All sorts of bad things about this. But uh, she waits, and it turns out that Shayla grows. And in process of time, we learn in verse 12, Judah's wife dies. And uh, he's going around, and he's at, at Timnath. And uh, while he's there, Tamar hears that he is going to Timnath to shear his sheep. So he's got lots of sheep there, and he's going to be busy. So she stops dressing like a widow. See, she's dressing, and who knows how long this is, but it seems like it's quite a while. So she's dressing like a widow because she's trying to show people she's not available. She's tied to Judah's family. So she's not available. She technically is married to either Judah or his surviving son. Uh, even though that marriage has not been consummated, she's technically married to them. So she's dressing as a widow so that no one will try and woo her or bother her or anything along those lines. But when she sees, and it does say that she sees that Shela, this uh, youngest son, has grown and that Judah hasn't sent him to fulfill these leveret responsibilities, she gets the idea this is Judah's not going to do what he's supposed to do. No one's going to take care of me. No one's going to provide me with a child or uh, my son Ur with a child. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands and she uh, stops dressing like a widow. She covers herself with a veil and in some way so that it, it looks like she's a harlot. I don't know that it's it's completely clear, but at least somewhat she can be taken as a harlot. And Judah sees her and his wife is dead. And I guess he's feeling uh, lonely and frustrated and whatever else. And so he decides he would like to sleep with this harlot. And so he says, I'd, I'd like to come in unto you. And she says, uh, what will your payment be? And he says, I'll send you a kid. And she says, okay, well, you can say you'll send me a kid, but I want some kind of pledge so that I know you will send me the kid because you're not giving me anything right now. And so he gives her collateral, basically. And his collateral is a signet. It's probably this uh, little thing that you uh, roll in clay to have your seal on it um, and some bracelets that seem to be uniquely his and, and his staff. And he says, when uh, you keep these and when I send back the kid or the, the baby uh, goat or lamb, uh, then you can give these back to me. Uh, but this is my collateral. So that's what he does. And he does sleep with her and she does get pregnant when he sleeps with her. Uh, and then she arises and she she leaves and Judah sends his friend to make the payment. But his friend can't find her, can't find her anywhere. And then we get uh, Judah. Uh, saying, this isn't going to look good for me, but what else can I do? And then he is told that Tamar is pregnant and he's very indignant. And he says, you know, she she's playing the harlot, right? Because technically she's still married to his family. How could she get pregnant? He knows he hasn't sent Shayla, so she's been playing the harlot and he's very upset about this. Uh, so he's going to burn her. Uh, but we get verse 25, when she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whose these are, uh, so she's showing those little, uh, his, the collateral he's given her, right? By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, discern, I pray thee, whose are these? The signet and the bracelets and the staff. And Judah acknowledged them. So Judah, you can imagine Judah like, oh, 
okay, I've been, I've been played here. I've been caught. Uh, and then he says, she hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not Shayla, my son. And he knew her again no more. So you see what has happened. Tamar actually has not been immoral at all. Uh, Tamar has ensured that a marriage that was supposed to happen, it did happen. So she's married to the family, as it were, and she's supposed to get pregnant by one of the men in that family. And so she made that happen. Now, I think this is a case where uh, two people engaging in the same act have uh, different things going on with them. Judah technically was not being immoral either. This was something that either he or Shayla were supposed to do, but he didn't know that. So in his heart, he was intending to be immoral. So I would guess he is immoral. Uh, while in her heart, she is not intending to be immoral. She's intending to be moral and she is within the law. So she's not immoral. So I think Tamar is, is moral here and Judah is not. So that I think it's a little way to highlight uh, how the intents of our hearts matter here. Uh, and again, this leveret law produces a child that will be the ancestor of David and the ancestor of Christ. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Christ is born of a leveret line. In fact, we'll see it happens again with Ruth. So he's, he's born twice from a, a two times leveret line because this law is designed to preserve life, to preserve uh, posterity, to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And that is a fantastic description of Christ who takes care of us and does for us what we can't do for ourselves and takes care of us in a way we can't take care of ourselves and thus preserves our life and the opportunity for us to have uh, eternal increase and, and, and family for forever. That's what the Savior did. And I think that's symbolized in this story. And so as I learned about the Leveret Law of Marriage, that made this story become very real to me. I could understand better what was going on with Judah, with his sons, with Tamar, uh, why they're doing what they're doing. I can feel that the, the charity that's supposed to be behind this law, the lack of charity that's happening in Judah, uh, and the lack of his morality, but also I can feel and see his recognizing, ah, I see she helped me do what I was supposed to do. And I wonder if this isn't the beginning of Judah's kind of reform. I, I think probably he's already had some elements of reform uh, in that he's seen Joseph suffering uh, and so on, but uh, as, as they sold him. And it may be that Judah wasn't so bad as we thought. Remember, the other option was to kill him. And so this may have just been Judah's way of trying to... Uh, to avoid that, uh, though he, he certainly makes a buck off of it. But uh, so I don't know. It's hard to know exactly what Judah is thinking and when, uh, but I do think we see at least an element or a, a part of his reform that we'll see more fully later on in this story. And I think we see this Leveret Law and how it can help us appreciate and understand Christ and our obligations. Obviously, we don't practice the Leveret Law of Marriage today, and even the thought of it gives people heebie-jeebies or whatever else. That's why this story seems so odd to us, but I think we do better if we see things from their cultural point of view, and uh, this is one of our, our seven C's, right? Uh, the culture, if we can look at things from their cultural point of view and see that this was an act of charity, uh, then maybe there's another C in there, but this was an act of charity, a way of taking care of people and uh, I, it then causes me to stop and think, okay, we're not going to do the lever of law, but still, there are widows to be taken care of. Uh, there are widowers to be taken care of. 
there are families that are in need and uh, what is my role in that. So this has become very real to me and powerful to me, and it helps me understand the whole Joseph story better and the Judah story and the story of David and of Christ better. And I hope it does the same for you.